Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. I hope everyone is off to a safe and healthy new year so far. With the resurgence of COVID cases in most places of the world, I know this isn't how any of us wanted our 2022 to start, but here we are. All I can say is stay strong, everyone. Let's take care of each other through these really difficult times. Now, I will also say that we are in for a big treat today on Unscrubbed with my amazing friend, the infamous Dr. Kelly Wright. This woman is truly remarkable in all of the ways. She's a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon out at Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles, and you can find her dropping the truth on Twitter at Migs Runner. She has a unique brain in that she was an engineering major at Texas A&M, which has given her a really interesting perspective on product design and really how devices interact with surgeons. On today's episode, Kelly dives into the impact of gender bias in all areas of medicine and how she manages this in the operating room, the power of social media, and one of my favorite learning points, how she advocates for herself for appropriate compensation when she's approached by industry for her opinions. Stay safe, everyone, and we hope you enjoy. So today on Unscrubbed, I have one of my dearest and most favorite humans in the world, Kelly Wright. Kelly, oh my goodness, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited. <laughs> I, I can't swear. contain my excitement. <laughs> I know it. We just uh, we just chatted for like a half an hour before we even started because I'm just I'm so excited to catch up with you. Yeah, it's thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here and do this with you. I've been a fan of your podcast for a while now. My gosh. I remember talking with you before I started the podcast. I was like, hey, Kelly, is this, an, is this a good idea? And you've always been like, do it. You're always my biggest supporter. Do it. <laughs> I think I contribute to your saying yes uh, to everything all the time. <laughs> Which we are going to get into boundaries later on today in our podcast. So that's a perfect segue <laughs> for that. <laughs> But uh, yes, you've always been my, my, my biggest fan. So I can't thank you enough for that. So I want to start out by talking about your journey, Kelly Wright. Meaning, uh, talk me through you know, how you got out of Texas. A lot of, a lot of Texas uh, folks like to stay, stay in that area. So tell, tell me about your journey going from Texas out to Boston. Yeah, you bet. I, I guess I was a weird Texan that I always wanted to leave and live somewhere else. But the practicalities of staying in state for, you know, in-state public school tuition were too great to pass up. And in high school, it sounds very cliche, but, you know, I really liked science and math and in particular physics. So decided to become an engineering major. And I went to Texas A&M because they had some really great options for engineering programs at the time. They were one of the only biomedical engineering programs in the country at the time. So I went there for undergrad and stayed there for med school. It was a really great med school. We had less than 80 students in our class. So it was really small and very focused on the clinical experience. But I always knew I wanted to leave. And so for residency, I applied broadly to every big and coastal city I could think of. And I'd happened to do a sub-I at Brigham and Women's in my fourth year. Luckily, made a great impression on them with my Texas charm. (laughs) <laughs> and was able to go up there for, for residency, which I think just really, you know, opened a lot of doors and opportunities for me. So did my residency in OBGYN at the Brigham and Mass General Combined Program 
and then developed, you know, my love for minimally invasive surgery during that time and stayed in the area for, for fellowship as well. Love this. So tell me more about this engineering brain that you had, because you still love tech design and product development and, and that whole aspect. And you can tell your brain likes that space. So were you thinking about going into engineering originally? Yeah, I do really like that space. So I did biomedical with a electrical focus and a lot of my classmates, you know, went into device design afterwards, worked for, you know, Medtronic or National Instruments. So really cool career paths through that degree. And even though I decided I wanted to work on the human side, I still really kept up this love for devices and how they interact with humans. So always pointing out the flaws, you know, in like electronic fetal heart tracings and, and then in our, you know, laparoscopic energy devices. And I think through that, I was always just very open about, you know, my opinion and my feedback on devices. And then in interacting with reps, uh, was able to then get access to engineers and some managers in the medical device industry and really develop, uh, some consulting work there, which I enjoy because there's a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, you and I talk about, you know, gender bias a lot in, in medicine. It's really extreme in engineering. I was the only girl in my physics class in college with like 200 kids. But in the medical device industry, about 87% of the engineers are men. And, you know, and that persists all the way through development of women's health devices too. So they don't know what they don't know. If they're not getting input from the female surgeons, people with smaller hands, you know, people with different needs, they're not going to incorporate in that into their devices. So I think we really need to, you know, especially as female surgeons operating on women, really need to, you know, be the voice for improving development there. This is such an important space. And man, we can talk about this for an entire episode alone, right? Yeah. But I, I think you're, that, that brain, that analytical brain that you had with your engineering lens is so crucial on the medicine side of things too. And one of the articles I think that I read by you and I think it was Louise King, when you were talking about how only, how only 20% of graduating engineers were women in 2017. That's insane. Yeah, I think what's really strange too is if you look at our field and, and especially computer science, it was actually, you know, kind of this gender neutral field back in the seventies and eighties when it was just emerging. And then for some reason it became very gendered and became more this male dominated field that we don't know why. And it hasn't been increasing over the years. So I, again, I think it's a great career path for anybody. I think engineering in particular teaches you how to think and analyze, um, which is great for medicine wasn't great for medical school because you have to memorize a lot of things, which you don't in, <laughs> in engineering, but, um, but it is yeah. great once you get to the clinical aspect and you're having to do a lot of analysis. So it, for anybody who's interested, I you know, really like to promote that interest and encourage especially young women to go into these fields. So I, I, I think I want to move right into to gender bias in the OR from here because it's, it's such a good transition. So this is obviously a huge passion of yours and, and you use a lot of your social media platforms beautifully to really bring this to the surface. And, you know, gender bias is so apparent on so many levels. And we, we could break it down to simple things like block time discrepancies, uh, obviously the gender pay gap. And then like you're mentioning, relationships with industry, it makes a really big difference as well. Can you talk about your experience in this area just personally? 
Yeah, I think I never thought about it much on a personal level until I saw Caprice Greenberg's talk. I think it was the Academy of Academic Surgeons. I forget this specific term, but her presidential address in, I think it was 2016, glass ceilings and sticky floors. And it was the first time I'd really seen data applied to the issue of gender bias. You know, I always kind of feel it. You always like, oh, why am I treated like this? It seems like I'm treated differently, but I'd never really seen anybody put data to it before. And she just so eloquently, you know, presented all the data and really described this problem and how it's a problem for our workforce, both for, you know, burnout for women surgeons, turnover for women surgeons, you know, that fewer women surgeons finish their degrees and actually complete board certification. So it's actually a, a big deal for our, our workforce. And women are more likely to operate on on women patients. So it's really important for patients too, you know, that we preserve, preserve our entire workforce. So that's how I really got interested in starting to share my experiences through social media, which I, you know, I think anecdotes are important for storytelling because storytelling is like the catch. And then you can use that to get people interested. And then you can, you know, develop studies to look at the data. And Again, there's this really, you know, interesting data that's out there already. There's data showing that surgical scrub techs are more likely to, you know, file complaints against women surgeons. There's data that, you know, women physicians are more likely to get bad feedback from from trainees on their teaching styles. And yet some of the data for patient outcomes show that women surgeons uh, actually, you know, might have a lower mortality rate of their patients. So I think it's just really interesting that we're starting to talk about these discrepancies. If we can study them and bring them to light, then we can do something about them. If we continue going on in the dark, never acknowledge that it's a problem, we're never going to do anything about them. So incredibly important, Kelly. I, your words resonate so deeply. <clears throat> and, and you're right. I, you make me think about like powerful speakers in that people remember how you make them feel. Right. And so the data is extremely important, but, but making them feel something with that storytelling aspect is, is crucial to pull them in. And then I remember very distinctly that that keynote lecture by by Caprice as well and how she put data to everything that we were feeling but couldn't really put our finger on. It was incredibly powerful. I mean, I recommend that everybody watch it. <laughs> I probably yes. watched it on YouTube maybe five times just to to really take it in because I think she makes great points about how again the you know the how it hurts the workforce and that hurts male surgeons as well you know it, it and when we when we all work together as a community we all do better yeah i do maybe we can post the link to it in the show notes or something but cuz i think it's just a fantastic talk yes that's a it's a brilliant idea and you know getting written up more or having more complaints filed against us oh my god kelly i'm from boston and a female surgeon, which means, I mean, <laughs> my fellows know I get written up, not, not a little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because we have opinions. Anecdote, because it relates yeah. to industry as well. Um, yeah. And and this was when I was working in Boston, and uh, a, a company who you know I've done a lot of work with brought in a device for me to evaluate it, and so I was using this device. I didn't like it very much. <laughs> I was very critical. 
you know, I made very distinct criticisms of all the points that, that I thought were, were lacking and some, you know, ideas for better design development. And then, you know, maybe two weeks later, I got called into my chair's office and he said, someone, you know, submitted a complaint that you weren't very nice in the OR. And I said, oh, yeah, can you, can you tell me more? Can you give me more feedback about this? He said, yeah, it was when the you know, device rep was in there and you were saying all these bad things about their device. And I was like, well, yeah, I was you know, asked to give feedback on it. Did, did the rep complain? I know this rep really well, so I, you know, I feel terrible if I hurt their feelings. And I thought, oh, no, the nurse put in a complaint that they thought you might have hurt the rep's feelings. And I said, this is what you're calling me into your office about? Stop um, it. So that was actually, that was early in my career. And that was, you know, one of the first times I had been given feedback like that, you know, from my, my tone or, you know, whatever criticisms I was providing. I talked with the rep afterwards. She was like, oh yeah, it was totally fine. I was asking you for you know, criticism. <laughs> it wasn't personal. You're talking right. about the device. Right. So just that assumption that maybe because I was a young female surgeon, I shouldn't be providing that criticism. You know, who was I to give feedback on a device? So, and just the assumption that I was doing it in a way that was personal or hurting the rep's feelings, whereas it was really very like mechanical and about, you know, this piece of equipment. So that is one of my early stories that kind of just opened my eyes on how I'm perceived in the OR. And people make assumptions about who you are, you know, based on what you look like. And it takes a long time to overcome those assumptions. I mean, as a young looking, I mean, we, you know, luckily look young, even though we've Thank been you. in our careers for almost a decade, you know. Um, sunscreen. <laughs> might not it's feel sunscreen. so young. Yeah. And, and also being short, uh, you know, you perpetually look younger than you are. So I think all of those assumptions play a role in how people perceive us. It's a problem when you're walking into an OR and people don't know you. Once they get to know you, then they know who you are and they know what you can do. They know your expertise. But before they understand that, you know, you're very likely to get these complaints. So it just, yeah, really affected me and how I realized, you know, how I was perceived in the operating room. That resonates so deeply. Thank you for sharing that. And it, it just goes to show, like, it's not only, like, when I say things a certain way, sometimes I'm like, oh, crap, that was, like, really, quote, unquote, curt or a little, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't soften that. Like, should I have softened that? And it's just not the way my brain works. But it's also the way people perceive us. It's like an all ends of, of this, like, implicit bias of how females in general are supposed to speak or deliver messages, maybe. And I'm curious, did this feedback and I, I, you're such a reflective person. I know it, it changed you in the way that you understood the way people perceived you, but did it change the way that you've given feedback or has it changed your tone at all? Or are you still pretty, pretty similar to the way, to the way you were back then? <laughs> I'm pretty directive. Um, <laughs> but I guess maybe it makes me like put an asterisk on everything. Like, oh, I'm going, you know, this rep is here because I'm giving feedback on this product. Like, like telling people what I'm doing so they're not assuming about, you know, who I am or, or what I'm doing. Same thing with, with trainees, right? We always talk about how do you give good feedback to trainees? You don't want to do it in a way that's personal or harmful, but you want to do it in a way that they recognize it's feedback. And sometimes that is saying, 
this is feedback <laughs> and it's about your technique to make you better. It's not about you as a person. Yes. Sometimes I'll even say to the residents, like I am micromanaging you simply because I want you to do it right and put the device, you know, right in that millimeter. I'm telling you, it's not about you as a person or my trust for you. It's just about you developing great technique. And so I think I was doing everything with that caveat. This is what I, this is my intention. So nobody can assume what my intention is. My God, you're so brilliant. I can't even take this. I can't take it. You're just so brilliant. I can't take it. <laughs> I can't just, take your compliments because that's a thing <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> you're just, you're so thoughtful and you, you express in words the way things, the way a lot of us feel, at least I feel, right? Where you're right. You have to, I'm just going back to the surgical education example that you just gave and that you oftentimes have to say that you're providing feedback, like this is considered feedback. And just like you said, it's for technical skill or the non-technical or whatever area you're giving the feedback in. But another thing that I've also had to start incorporating from feedback back towards me is making sure that you're providing it in a atmosphere that the resident feels safe. For instance, uh, previously I used to give feedback when we were closing and I didn't think anyone was really paying attention. It was like me and the resident and everyone else is like, doing things in the room and I'd provide my feedback then in a quiet voice just between me and my resident. But I got feedback that that, that wasn't, like I offended my resident because it was in, in front of other people. Even though I, I wasn't necessarily including them, I didn't think they were even listening. But you're right, like every part of that feedback time, right, is, is, can impact your learner. And so you're bringing up really good points in that specifying your intention is really important. Yeah, I think that's a great example of environment too. Is yeah. When you're giving feedback, is the environment you're giving in, like, is that actually going to make it useful? Um, Like when my chair gave me feedback on this, was that useful? (laughs) Probably not. You know, that that didn't help me in any way or advance my career. It made me feel really bad, um, you know, for a long time, especially as a young surgeon. So, and now I can be reflective on it, but I think it could have been, you know, delivered in a different way, or maybe with this data that we now have, like, to actually help inform me and, and help me improve myself in the moment rather than just, you know, feel bad about myself for, for a long time. So um, oh, yeah. I think we can all work on, work on the environment. Yeah, uh, really, really good points. And so the downstream effects of all these different levels of gender bias are huge. Uh, and obviously we're all here for patient safety. So that's obviously of, of paramount importance. This also includes things like funding research for women's health. Like so many little things are impacted by this. So so huge thank you for bringing this to the surface, truly. It, it means a lot for physicians, patients, everyone down the line. Yeah, and just to touch on that too, in women's health, I mean, it, it affects the reimbursement too, right? Yes. If the um, women's health is not as valued as other fields because there's a limited pie to go around. And, you know, studies show that GYN surgery coding gets reimbursed, I think it's 28% less than the equivalent procedure on male bodies. And we are, as GYN surgeons, the lowest paid of the surgical specialties you know, what does that say about how we can run a practice, how we can, you know, pay our loans back over time, how we can build careers, how we can take care of women and how women can feel valued if, 
even in healthcare, the, the straightest of the straight thing, the reimbursement yeah. is lower. And I think that's something, again, nobody's really talked about it in the past, but it's coming out more and more as we're talking about gender bias and gender bias in the OR. And I think it's something that our national organizations really need to advocate for. I mean, the, I'm a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. They're constantly advocating you know, to prevent cuts to reimbursements, you know, constantly advocating for, the, for their surgeons to be paid fairly. And I think it's time that, that we, you know, that GYN surgeons are advocated for in the same way. There's a heavy focus in obstetrics and women's health, which is fair, which is totally fair. There's a lot of, gosh, there's so many things that need to be done in obstetrics, right. but not all of women's health is about pregnancy. You know, not everybody who gives birth is a woman. Not every woman wants to give birth. We need to be very specific about advocating for, you know, GYN surgeons for the job that we do for our patients. Absolutely. And if our listeners are just tuning in today, Louise King, I interviewed her for the last couple episodes. And so definitely check out her discussion around the double discrimination, which you're talking about right? And she fantastic goes into- paper that she oh, wrote. Yeah. Oh, fantastic paper. And, and kudos to the Green Journal for publishing it with the comments. Uh, you know, that's a great step forward in recognizing so that our national organizations can advocate for closing those gaps. 5,000%. Yes. It's, I always say this, but steady, unrelenting pressure. Right? <laughs> Just it down and get it done. Yes. Now, I want to ask you one last question about this industry component because you've taught me so much here. I just texted you last week in an SOS help text about how to respond to an email that I received. So I I want you to be able to share this uh, with our listeners. So I'm curious, a lot of industry people approach you. You're a key opinion leader and they know you're a straight shooter, which we've talked about. (laughs) And so (laughs) your opinions are priceless. It, It truly makes a difference in product design. So when you are approached by industry for your input on various products, how do you advocate for yourself for adequate compensation, whether that be time or financial components? Because I feel like a lot of these requests are just out of the goodness of our heart and the passion we have for forward progression in our field. But how do you respond to these plethora of emails uh, in regard to compensation? Yeah, yeah. It's so, it's so great. And, and I love talking about this because I think we... I, I was trained, not trained, but, you know, giving good advice from my mentors like Peter Rosenblatt and Arnie Vinculas, great mentor as well, on working with industry and how we can really make an impact. But we do need to be compensated for our time. Our time is valuable and women aren't given as many opportunities to participate in industry as men and we're not compensated as much. And many times we're not offered anything. So I think it's really important that we advocate for ourselves for compensation. We have to remember that, you know, medical device industries are million dollar industries, pharma's billion dollar industries. They pay people for their opinions all the time. We have to be paid like the adequate market rate for our expert opinion. We are the experts, okay? If we don't drive the design, if they're not making the device for us or for patients, who are they making it for? They're making it based on marketing. They really need our input. So again, 
we need to exert, <laughs> we need to stand up and say, yes, we are experts and we should be paid for our time. Because think about it, 15 minutes, that's a whole patient visit. I would otherwise, yep. you know, get adequately paid for our time. You can, if you keep giving away 10 and 15 minutes here and there, you know, you, you're going to use up all your free time as well. So when I'm approached by a company, I always set in advance, you know, whether or not it's a paid opportunity. So, oh, thanks so much for reaching out. I'm very interested in this area. This is an uh, area of interest of mine, of expertise of mine. Can I confirm this is a paid opportunity? If they, you know, already said uh, what, you know, uh, let's discuss our market rates. As you can imagine, I get many requests for my expertise in this space. Can you, uh, can we discuss compensation again? I think, can you confirm this as a paid opportunity is one of the best like opening lines and companies will show you who they are. Yes. <laughs> like, oh yes, of course, this is a paid opportunity. Here are our market rates or, well, no, why can't you just volunteer your time? I think that shows you right off the bat who you're working with. And then you can, you know, respectfully decline. Um, we want to work with people who value us. And that's the bottom line. You've changed my life in many ways, but this is a huge place you've changed my life. And I'll be honest. I mean, can you imagine asking for free legal advice or anyone else who's, who's dedicating their expertise for time? Like it costs money. And so I think giving everyone, but especially women, the confidence and um, empower them to speak, to speak just the way you're stating it. I mean, it's, it's going to change the culture eventually. It will. And I, I mean, this only comes out of the many mistakes I've made, the many hours of free time I've given away, expecting that somebody is going to pay me afterwards or give me an opportunity, you know, to make an income afterwards. They just don't do it. And no. I've been taken advantage of uh, just as you get further along in your career and people hearing this now, you know, should do this from the very beginning of their career. But and I've even guided some, some residents and fellows on this too, because they're experts in their space too. Just because you're a trainee doesn't mean you don't have more expertise you know, in a device than an engineer. You've actually used the device on a patient. The engineer never used the device on a patient. So even from trainee you know, level, we need to be advocating for ourselves. I love it. And you bring up another good point in that sometimes the trainees lens is totally different in the best possible way. Or even like sometimes I'm in the OR and I'm like, oh, how am I going to get this thing in this bag? Oh, Lord, hold me. I ask anesthesia. They love when I call them anesthesia. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Use their name. <laughs> but Dr. So-and-so, like, what are your thoughts on this? Like sometimes it's like a different lens, a different brain looking at a problem can be really crucial in advancement. I think the great thing about trainees, residents, and fellows is that they work with so many different people right? Yeah. So our residents work with, you know, 150 different attendings. I just work with myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, they have this really broad lens of what is going on um, yeah. throughout the entire department. Whereas once you're an attending, I feel like we do, you know, somewhat get siloed in what we're doing unless we're actively like seeking out other people or opportunities for learning, then you just kind of do what you do. So I think trainees have a lot to offer <laughs> and yeah. I think they should be approached for their opinion if they decide that's how they want to spend their time. Absolutely. And I, I have to put this in here, Kelly. One way that is really great to get out of your silo is surgical coaching, right? 
A hundred percent. You're a trained coach. I went through the surgical coaching program. I think it's incredible. Dr. King, you did an amazing, you know, grand rounds at our institution about surgical coaching. It's, it's really inspiring. I think there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's more and more like focus on executive coaching and just the fact that like everybody needs, everybody wants to continue like improving what they're doing. You, you just want to exactly. keep getting better and better. You don't want to get stagnant. And I, I think surgical coaching is a great way for surgeons to do that. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> 